So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. 
but those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we think on these uh, words of scripture together that uh, your spirit would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes, that we would behold the glory of Christ and and we would uh, know how we might be a community of people that live in a way that reflects the life of heaven. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So over the Christmas holidays, just after I think it was Christmas Eve, we go home. Uh, my brothers, two of them were visiting us and their kids, and my kids were home. So there were 12 adult persons sort of in and around our home over the holidays. So we go home, and the power's out. And, uh, and so we proceed to light every imaginable candle in the room. So we create, you know, what, uh, that, that great practice of Higge, right? We are uh, sort of creating little pools of light. And we sit around for our dinner time. And, and when we get to the post-dinner moment, uh, Stacy had received the Higge game. And so we uh, pull it out. It's basically this little card game, right? You pull out these it's a deck of cards and you begin to sort of filter through the cards one by one. And individuals around the table, you draw a card and there are three questions on a card and you can select whichever degree of intimacy you'd like to plunge into some cozy conversation with a family member. So there we are, my brother, my youngest brother, who can be quite the provocative one sometimes. He pulls out a card and he says, ah, this is a question for Tuck. And I'm like, oh dear, what's coming? And he says this, he asks this question. He says, so are human beings fundamentally good or evil? And a hush falls over the table, right? You know, let's stump the pastor brother. And I'm, I'm thinking, really? This is the question you saved up for me, for me? Don't you know what I'm going to say? Um, so now, look, it's an interesting question, right? In part, and it's a little bit provocative, in part because everyone around the table, um, for almost certainly, and most people in, inside of the world, and most of you in the room, can almost certainly agree that there is indeed something wrong with the world, right? <laughs> that we can look around the world, we, if, if you're looking out, you're looking on the social structures of the world, you're looking on the institutions of the world, you look at the politics at play in the world, you look at the way nations interact, you look at the way subcultural groups inside of a culture interact, uh, just so on and so forth. You can recognize that we live in a tremendously broken world. Uh, there's a lack of equality. There's injustice that uh, is abounding inside of our world. There's pain. Uh, and then you pull into your own story more personally, and you know your own experiences of shame and guilt and the lack of love and your own struggle to love and so on and so forth. In other words, we can all recognize that something's not right about the world. Uh, and so here's the question. The question is really, how do these evils relate to me, to us, right? How do we participate in it? And that's at least the question my brother was asking me in that particular moment. So I decided to opt for a sociological answer and not so much a theological answer. You know, you would think, well, maybe Tuck's going to lean into that great Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity. But no, I opted not to. I said, let's think about this in a way. I said, you know, David, things are complex, right? 
There's a complexity to the world. So whether or not you think that a newborn child uh, is born with, you know, innocence or innate goodness or not, or whether you think that newborn child is born into the world with evil, they almost certainly, without a doubt, are born into family systems and sets of relationships in which they will, from a very, very early age, experience the profound brokenness of our world. And they will themselves not relate to that brokenness in love. In other words, very early on, we will become persons that are shaped by the brokenness of the world, and we'll give it back. We'll participate in that, personally and institutionally, in a variety of ways. So that's the answer, the nuance that I leaned into in that particular moment uh, during my family Christmas conversation. Uh, I won't tell you how the conversation went or what happened, but and we'll stop there with the Bartholomew Chronicles. What's wrong with the world is the question we're trying to think about together today. And it is a question that comes up in situations like a game or a private conversation with a friend or your own personal reflections on your experiences of the brokenness of the world. So these two texts, how do they shape an answer to that question? How do they help us think about it? And I want to use three words to sort of think about these texts. Relationship, work, and love. So first, relationship. The Colossians text uh, at the beginning of chapter 3 here, verses 1 to 4, Paul assumes that our relationship with Jesus, our connectedness to Jesus is of such a depth and such a character that he can say that which is currently true of Jesus is also true of you. That which is currently true of Jesus is also true of you, right? Uh, he is risen and so you are risen, right? So even, even as you and I still live life in this world, right? In the brokenness of this world, experiencing some of its pain, observing some of its pain. Paul can say your, your identity, your union, your, your connection to who Jesus is, is of such a quality and depth that that which is true of him is also true of you. It's a powerful statement. But it's a statement that I think can also feel really inauthentic, right? Have you ever felt that inauthenticity, right? When you think about your own experiences of life in this world, right? It can feel a little bit like a game of pretend because most of us don't actually feel the truthfulness of that, right? That's not what I feel day in and day out. What I feel day in and day out is I don't feel raised up. I feel like I'm sometimes stuck in the broken patterns of this world and the brokenness of this world. I can sometimes feel like I end up in a space of despair where I'm like, okay, I see these amazing words that Paul writes, but how does my real life connect to those amazing words? They feel really, really distant. I feel more a part of that darkness that he describes than the light. Maybe you feel that way as well. Paul, I think, certainly felt that way sometimes himself. I think he describes that in Romans chapter 7 to some degree. But here, he invites his readers to act on the truthfulness of their relational connectedness to Jesus. In other words, he asks us, what would it look like for you to express your agency, to sort of take these words at 
a truthful face value. In other words, the way you might think about if you're, if you're in a close friendship, right, with someone and they're not near you, how would you continue to act on the reality of that friendship? If you're married, how would you continue to act on the reality of that covenant of marriage and so on and so forth, right? He's asking the church to become a community that takes the relational connectedness to Jesus at face value and to act on it in some interesting and profound, truthful way. What's wrong with the world? From the Christian perspective, what's wrong with the world has to do with the disruption of human life and connection with God himself. And Jesus has remedied that disruption. He's overcome it in his own life and death and resurrection and ascension. And so Paul says, now wherever Jesus is, ascended to the right hand of God, right? In other words, raised up, affirmed by God, given the name that is above every name, that is where your life belongs, in that space with him, because you're connected to him. So what would it look like if you acted on that reality in the middle of this world? And you might think about your own reality and experience of that this morning, your relationships with the real people around you, not the imagined ones, not the easy ones that you think, I love humanity, but no, your office mate, <laughs> right? Your colleague in the workspace, your roommate, your neighbor that lives beside you. Who are the people that you walk through life with? How would taking Jesus at his word shape your interactions in those spaces of life. So Paul essentially says that. He says, put your mind on that reality. In other words, set your mind on things above for the sake of this life now. In other words, you know, setting your, life, setting your mind on things above. Now, that's a, a statement or a phrase, an idea that I think sometimes Christians in the church has, have really abused and gotten wrong. Uh, and we get it wrong because we sort of we begin to dichotomize between God's world and our world. So we think that spiritual things are immaterial. They're not, they don't have to do with my next-door relationships, right? They, they're, they're more about the future or they're out there somewhere. I'm interior space, right? In my contemplative moments, I don't have to think about my neighbor. But really what Paul is beginning to talk about as you go through this whole text, you realize he's thinking about life in the here and now that is shaped by your mindset on this space in which God dwells and which you're a part of. So that our imagination and our courage for living now would be expanded, right? In other words, we would begin to live into the realities of who Jesus is and what he's done. We pray this every single week when we say those very simple words from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We say that we believe that that which is true of God's world has is important for our world. Alienation from God is our struggle, our problem, what's wrong with the world. And here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul imagines a church community that begins to build out human life differently. <laughs> the way we live with neighbor, the way we live with God, the institutions we build, the way we relate culturally even, we could say, that we would reflect the abundance of our life in the presence of God because of Jesus. Now, second, the work. What is the work of reflecting that good life of heaven, heaven on earth? 
Paul uses these familiar metaphors uh, of changing one's clothes, right? Putting off and putting on, and the metaphor perhaps even of dying and rising in some sense, right? Uh, put to death, therefore, uh, to describe, I think, a practice of heaven on earth, right? If you want to just put it that, in those sort of terms, this is a practice that we're meant to take up, put onto our lives, right? Take off certain things. Um, now, Paul may be calling to mind certain early baptismal practices, actually. In other words, it's conceivable that in this early moment of the church's life, that when people would turn to Jesus initially, right, and they would go out to be baptized, that there would be a literal changing of clothes, a taking off of an old set of clothes and the gifting of a white robe that they would put on that's symbolic of their life in Christ, right? And so Paul may be sort of just picking up something that the church was already doing sort of symbolically, and now he infuses it with everyday meaning. What does it look like to sort of take seriously what you did symbolically in your baptism? This dying and rising, this putting off, this putting on. Um, in the Old Testament scripture, God delivers Israel from slavery in other words, he reconstitutes this covenanted relationship that he has with them. And he says this wonderful phrase that I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a, it's a phrase that sort of imagines profound reconnection with the presence of God himself. And from there he begins to elaborate what we think of and know of as the Ten Commandments, right? And what are the Ten Commandments? You know, so they're not a way into relationship, but they're a way of cultivating and reflecting the reality of a relationship. In other words, the Ten Commandments begin to reflect what would it look like for Israel to take seriously the presence of God in their midst, to live heaven on earth, so to speak, in a sense, right? Th th their life that they live now would be in sync with what is true of them by virtue of this relationship with God. Paul, I think, is doing something similar here. One of the ways that you and I might be able to tell if, in fact, our minds are set on, set on things above is that life in the here and now begins to play out differently through this putting on, putting off and putting on practice, right? Uh, it would play out differently as we begin to relate to other people, not just God, but other people through behaviors that actually fit the life of heaven rather than behaviors that don't. And so we have a list of vices and virtues in this particular text. The vices, right? Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. And then in verse 8, Paul continues the list of, of vices, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying to one another. And he Wright, as he reflects on this particular text, uh, this, these particular lists, he says it's a way of looking at these two statements, the first list and the second list as they come together, that each of them contain overlapping words that are referencing the way human beings live with their sexuality, the way they live with sex, on the one hand, their bodies and passions, and on the other hand, the way that we live with our words. Both of these are very intimate spaces, right, in which we're connecting to someone, right, you know, bodily through sexual practices verbally, communicatively, through our words and interactions with one another. And so what he's beginning to sort of articulate is there's a way of living with our sex, living with sexuality, and a way of living with our words that actually don't reflect the world that God is bringing and who Jesus is. 
They run against the grain of the world. They run against the grain of relationship themselves. And so Paul here is asking the church to think about whether or not the practices of their lives reflect this fundamental union they have with who Jesus is. Some think that this other word in there, selfishness and greed, which is idolatry, whether that idea is beneath all of the other problems. In other words, sex and words governed by selfishness and greed rather than oblation, as we talked about last week. If you have this relationship with God, raised up with Jesus who is at God's right hand, he's essentially saying it doesn't make sense for you and I to continue to live in a dark kind of way practically in everyday life. But we should come into the light, as John says in the gospel reading. Change your clothes. Put off, put on, express your agency by taking the relationship that you have with Jesus very, very seriously. Now look, certainly in any conversation we would have personally about this, these lists of vices here in particular, right, we would find ourselves in some debate. We'd find ourselves in some disagreement perhaps. And certainly if you extended the conversation around this list of vices into the culture, right, if you go to class tomorrow or if you go into the workspace and you said, hey, I was in sermon, I read this text from Paul about these vices. What do you think about, you know, fornication? That would be an interesting conversation in that higgy moment. Right? We would find ourselves in spaces of disagreement, but you know what? We would also find ourselves in spaces of profound agreement. Um, we live in a cultural moment that recognizes, still recognizes, an evilness in the way that we live sexually and the way that we live with our words. There's an acknowledgement that these continue to be problematic. You could just look at the news reports over this last year about all of the abuses, right, from um, toxic masculinity, for example, right? And you could think about Harvey Weinstein. You could think about the recent documentary on R. Kelly. You could think about, you know, uh, Kevin Spacey, the accusations against Kevin Spacey. You could, in other words, it's not hard to find public figures who have been, what, called out because of some abuse, some selfish use of sexuality and power. And we utilize words in that space to do the calling out. There's an interesting article this week that David Brooks had in the New York Times, um, an editorial on the effects or the perils really of the call out culture, right? In other words, he's sort of commenting on our use of words uh, to call out certain injustices, uh, right? Now, that we utilize to sort of speak to places where we recognize there's some misstep sexually or some misstep in our abusive words of some sort in some way. And it isn't that there aren't um, failures and abuses that are worthy of being called out. That's not what he's talking about. But he's suggesting that sometimes the impersonal way and the use of social media way, the merciless way in which we do call out wrongs may not actually perpetuate or create wholeness. It may perpetuate the brokenness of society. So my point is just simply this, that even though we'd have some disagreement about where we might draw boundaries or how we might make some definitions around sex and the use of words, 
These are very prominent ways that almost everyone in our culture can point to and acknowledge there's brokenness. There's something we might call evil there. Sin is anything that is disruptive of our life with God and our life with one another. Anything that is disruptive of our life with God and our life with one another. Vices, the ones that are listed here, disrupt, they tear apart, they pull apart because they're driven by selfishness. Now, virtues. It's interesting. The effect of Jesus' life that Paul begins to sort of articulate here in verses 12 to 17 are these beautiful words and statements, right? There is no longer Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, what is God calling out on society in that text? He is calling out division. He is calling out inequalities. He is calling out our tendency to sort of find our identity in particularities and differences that we possess ethnically, religiously, socioeconomically, right? And in, in Galatians, Paul adds gender differences to the list, right? But, but humanity, human beings sort of lean into these differences in a way of self-definition that deprives the other of definition. And Paul said, Paul calls that out. In Jesus, God is calling that out, but to the end and in such a way that there are no more divisions. Interesting, Jesus doesn't erase difference. <laughs> There's something really beautiful about that. Jesus doesn't erase difference, but he allows the community that he's calling together to live in the kind of unity that doesn't exclude because of difference. And what Paul is saying of this particular community is that we live in a moment inside of the church community as you practice this way of living in Christ, of being raised up, of setting your mind on things above and the virtues that we'll get to in just a moment, that we would live and practice these things in such a way that we would practically recognize the church as a place that honors differences but doesn't segregate or, or, or you know, exclude on the basis of differences. But we live with a new kind of unity because of the love that we've received in Jesus. So what kind of virtues might be necessary to a community like that? So you have this list, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. The call to bear with one another. Because when we bump up into each other and we recognize that we do things differently, that we think things different, that we think different thoughts, and that we perceive the world somewhat differently, and that our own experiences in life don't always map onto each other's experiences in life, what does it mean? It's, it's so easy for us to begin to write each other off. But he says, here, bear with one another. Bear with one another. Have you ever tried to live in a connected way? that is meaningful with persons with whom you disagree? Have you ever tried to sort of be present to one another in a lovingly truthful way in the midst of deep disagreements? That's one of the things that the culture war of our day doesn't allow to happen. In the church, Christians should not be persons or communities that participate in the culture war. But we live with Christ in such a way that we're able to be present to one another, bearing with one another 
even when we deeply disagree with one another. Bear with one another. And when you find yourself in spaces of complaint and, you know, hey, does that happen? Yeah, it happens all the time. Because we don't love consistently and we've not been loved consistently. So Paul says, when that's true, when that happens, practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness because God practices forgiveness with you in the person of who Jesus is. So practice forgiveness with those persons with whom you disagree and those that hurt you and even harm you perhaps. These are ways of expressing and embodying the life of heaven on earth. And I really wish that the report that I could have on the history of the church and, you know, and our own personal experiences of church would be that, hey, that's what happens all the time. But the reality isn't that because it's work. It requires intentionality. And that's what Paul is calling the church to here, to take seriously the work of Jesus, that if you belong to him and if you've been raised up with him, put off and put on. Become intentional about what he's done in your life in a serious way. Now, third, love. Paul calls us to circle back over and over again to the space of light, to clothe yourselves in this love, right, that you've received from God, the kind of love that binds and pulls together toward wholeness, right, that reflects the rule and the abundance of Jesus' presence. Circle back to that over and over again. Why? Because when you leave City Church or maybe when you're just having coffee after a service and you're talking to someone in the service, maybe even during the meet and greet moment, maybe as you're sitting there and you're thinking about someone in, you know, else in the room that you don't really enjoy or like, right? You know, we are always bumping into spaces in which we are previously formed to not love. We're previously formed to divide, to retreat, to pull away, to control, to behave in a very controlling manner, right? To be afraid of unity. But Paul says, when that's happening, circle back to the story of who Jesus is. Come back to his love. Think about it. Sort of put yourself in places where you let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, right? As this one body, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, in the things that you teach the hard moments of admonishment, right? Now, this is the interesting thing. Love doesn't just mean I go to you and say, hey, you're just a wonderful person. You're so great. You're so awesome. That's not love. Love means sometimes you call out. Sometimes you have to say hard things. Sometimes you have to say, look, you li- you're living in an unjust way. You're living in, an un- in, a- in a way that's unkind and ungenerous, right? And so you, we call it out, words of admonition. But let the peace of Christ rule in you. Let his word, let the story of who Jesus is shape the way you go into a word of admonition. That's what Paul is saying. Take up gratitude for God's particular love for you. And give thanks in all things. Habits. The rule of life. The liturgy of our everyday lives open our imagination for ways of living out our human lives. What are your habits? What is the liturgy of your daily grind? 
What do you do that brings you to the story of Christ or leaves you in the story of the world that's broken, that's dark, right? That's, this is what it means practically to come into the light versus living in the darkness. What stories, what habits are taking you to the way that you imagine the good life and actually begin to execute on it? What are those habits? John 3.16 is a famous verse for very good reasons. Because it anchors our imagination in the astounding truth of God's love for the world, the whole cosmos, all people across all times and all circumstances. So whatever we think of the wrong that is in the world, however we define that, the important thing that John 3.16 tells us is that God did not leave the world to that course. He came, he gave. He entered the story, the history of our lives, of human life in Jesus in such a way that enabled him to call darkness dark and yet at the same time to open up the light to us. Because the whole of Jesus' life was an offering, his life for our life. An oblation, as we said last week, right? So that in Jesus, we begin to hear words that we desperately need to hear about ourselves, about God, about the possibility even of ourselves. He offers and acts in ways toward human beings that is always about their completion, always moving them toward the light. You're joined to him. When uh, G.K. Chesterton was asked, what's wrong with the world? He is quoted as famously saying, you know, why I am, madam. And the point is just very simply this. It's not those people over there. Let's start with me. How have I been malformed? How have I grown up in the brokenness of my world and how do I give it back? How do I reflect that back into the world? The dark line of the human brokenness isn't just out there somewhere, but it runs through my own heart. It's essentially what he's saying. But God loved the world, and he gave the Son. God loved that world, and he gave the Son. Rowan Williams sums it up this way. He says, we love God when and only when we are the conduit for God's reconciling presence with the person next to us. We love with God, with him, when and only when we are the conduit for his reconciling presence with the person that is next to us. That is the moment When you and I stand in the place of life, the place cleared and occupied for us by Jesus himself, because you are raised up with him, seek the things that are above. That's Paul's exhortation to the church, that we would stand with God in his love for the real person that is seated beside you this morning and that you'll stand beside this afternoon or tomorrow or any other time in the week, that Christ's words would dwell in you richly in that moment as you love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, um, we ask for your help. 
We ask that you would meet us in our spaces of unbelief, our uncertainty, our doubts even, that words like these could be possibly true. Would you remind us this morning again of your astounding love for us in Jesus as we circle again and again to his story, letting Christ's word dwell in us richly. Meet us, we ask, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.